Hey there, and welcome back to the Clarity Podcast. This podcast is all about providing clarity, insight, and encouragement for life and mission. And my name's Aaron Santemeyer, and I'm going to be your host. Today, we have the phenomenal opportunity to have one of the authors of the book, The Church Called Tove, with us. Scott McKnight and his daughter, Laura, wrote this book together. Laura couldn't be with us today, but Scott graciously agreed to be on the podcast and just learn so much from him. This book is one that has challenged me. My friend, or actually friend and boss, Greg Beggs, is the one that recommended it. Uh, my friend, Zach Maddox, also recommended it. He said, and Zach said, hey, you should get him on the podcast. That would be a great interview. So Jack, so Zach's the one that spurned me on to, to do this. And so have, have him on the podcast and just learn so much from Scott when it comes to this, this book of the church called Tove. So he dives into what happened at Willow Creek with Bill Hybels. He talks talks about that situation. Him and Laura, as co-authors, they talk about that and write about that. The reality of it is, is, is looking at an event, that's, that's one part, but then casting a vision for the future of what a healthy culture, what a goodness culture looks like. And that's what Scott and Laura do in this book. Um, talks about the ideas of having a nurturing and empathetic culture versus a narcissistic culture, which can happen in the church. I interviewed Chuck DeGroote on his book, When Narcissism Comes to the Church. Um, just an also an insightful, that was season two, episode 18. Very valuable learning. The realities of narcissism can make its way into the church. Looking at having nurturing grace and not having a fear culture within a church or within an organization, obviously these would these would all apply. Um, now, now Scott would say churches are organisms, organizations are business. But anyway, so Scott, sorry Scott for that. But um, telling the truth, having a truth-telling culture uh, that we resist making narratives to help us sound better, look better, but we seek to find the truth. Having a, a culture that nurtures justice. Um, resist the idea that we have to be loyal to the brand and we have to do whatever's best for the brand when it comes to... But the reality of it is Scott challenges us that we should seek justice. If people have been hurt, regardless of what it does to the brand, we should seek justice for the, for those people. Putting people first. Um, and Scott, does a, Scott and Laura do a great job of unpacking the reality of when we... We start off serving people, but as the organization grows, then we need people to feed the organization and how that drift. And then people become tools within the organization rather than the, the goal and the motivation of the, the church is, is for people, right? It's not for just to have a church to have a church, but sometimes we can drift towards that. An idea of, of service, nurturing service within a faith community rather than going towards a celebrity culture where pastors and leaders um, will surround themselves. They believe they're a celebrity. They surround themselves with people that that will tell them they're they're a celebrity, treat them like they're a celebrity. They're the smartest person, the funniest person, the best looking man or woman um, in the room. Uh, And so that feeds itself and resisting that for a a culture of service and being like Christ Um, and nurturing Christ-likeness and resist this idea. This is one of the challenging things. He talks about the leader culture that is this in the church. Now, I've done a lot of episodes on this podcast of being a leader, so I'm not against being a leader, but he does challenge us the the change that's happened in the church where pastors were seen as pastors and spiritual directors, and now we've moved and somewhat moved towards the idea that the pastors are leaders and entrepreneurs, where the next 
buzz, the next greatest sermon, the next greatest. We're creating hype around the 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 event that's going to happen on Sunday. Um, but where did where did we lose the idea that pastors were our spiritual directors? Our pastors were people that walked alongside of us and um, that that are our good shepherds. So lots of challenging things in the podcast today. Would ask you to continue to send in your questions for Back Channel of Foth. That's where I sit down with Dick Foth and we answer listeners' questions. Just a valuable time. Always great to learn from Dick. Well, there's no time better than now to get started. So here we go. Greetings and welcome back to the Clarity Podcast. So excited to have a new friend of the podcast with us today, Scott McKnight. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Aaron, good to be with you. It's exciting. I, you know, I've read your book twice. Um, and so I've in some ways feel like I know you, but I don't know you because when you spend that much time with somebody's book, um, it, uh, you feel like you know them. Scott, for those who have not read some of your works, would you just go ahead and share a little bit about yourself before we jump into some of the questions? Yes. Um, I'm nearly 70 years old. I've been a professor for 40 years. Wow. Uh, at two different seminaries, one undergraduate school. And um, I guess it was in 2004 when I published a book called The Jesus Creed that uh, I began to be more of a professor and writer for the church rather than Hmm. just the academy. Hmm. And uh, as a result, I've been drawn into a lot of church situations. And uh, the most recent one has been all about uh, church abuse, pastor Hmm. abuse, power abuse, a little bit of sexual abuse as well. And uh, so we, my daughter and I have written two books. This one is uh, published. Hmm. The other one will come out later this year. Wow. Um, and um, we've been trying to explore together uh, how to help churches create a more positive goodness culture, or the Hebrew word tov, goodness, yeah. a tov culture. Yeah. So what's it like? What are some of the joys of writing a book with your daughter? Well, you know, I'm the I'm the author primarily. Yeah. Uh, in the sense that uh, I do sort of the first draft of almost everything. Yeah. Uh, Laura does write stories, and then yeah. she'll write. I'll give her a project, and she'll write something up. Uh, but she also edits, and yeah. we talk over some of the stuff, and we have uh, back and forths. And it's it's not been a battle at all, except. Uh, the first battle was that she was a pest trying to get me to write this book because <laughs> I told her I had other things I was working on. And it's not, you know, it's not like you can just sit down and write a book. It takes a while and you got to <laughs> spend time researching and getting things in order. Yeah. And then drafting and redrafting. Yeah. And um, the other, the other part um, has just been her schedule. She's a hmm. public school teacher. Yeah. Uh, doesn't always mesh with the publisher's schedule, yeah. the editor's schedule, or my schedule. So, but we haven't we haven't had any any serious battles. But she's always picky about the cover and the titles. <laughs> uh, you know the, what the cover art looks like, and I go, okay. Well. Very cool, very cool. Well, today we're going to be talking about a church called Tove, um, and in that you talk about culture and yeah. What defines a church organization's culture? And maybe we'll start there. You know, there's no um, simple set of categories that that can unfold this. But over time, 
this is very important, over time, practices by influential people in a church group, as well as policies that are formed and programs that are propped up, a culture forms that becomes, in a real sense, an agent that shapes people who enter into that culture to be like it. Mm. So uh, if you are in a toxic church, toxic institutional culture, it will shape you toward toxic behaviors. If you're in a tove, goodness culture, institution, it will shape you toward good behaviors and good practices. Hmm. And so I want to emphasize that it takes time. It's the result of human agency working uh, working things out that forms into such um, almost like a power at work in a group. Uh, if you worked for Mr. Rogers in Phil in Pittsburgh, I guess it was, you would feel different than if you worked for, say, a former president in the United States' inner circle. Sure. You you would immediately notice there's a complete difference. One makes you a better person, and one would be a challenge to become a better person. For sure. And so when you're looking for signs of toe culture, because you talk about that when we ch we're choosing a church or choosing a community to be part of, what are, si what are some of the things you look at in a culture to say that's a culture that will make me become more like Christ and not get into that toxic power um, human agency that you described? Aaron, this is an amazing question uh, because I would say it's next to impossible to read this mm. sort of thing quickly. Many, many people, let's say 50% of people, will look around and say, I know this is a good church. I can tell by the people. And other people are going to hang back and say, you know, I got to wait a while. The people who wait a while are going to be, in the end, the most accurate. And I would say it takes three months to a year for a discerning person to perceive the actual culture of that church. Be and, and part of it is because the people in that culture don't even know that culture. It's so invisible that they don't see it or recognize it. It's the air they breathe. It's the water in which they swim that they can't see. So I would say, um, if then I'm looking, I, I want to look at um, the actual variety of leadership, um, how many decisions are made by one person, who are the people who seem to have the strongest voices and the most presence, who are the people who are platformed, are they serving the community, uh, is someone making sure they get the glory, um, is the, how are they treating the poor, the weak? How are they treating women? I would be looking for these sorts of things as indicators of Tove, but it would take, I think it would take, it takes a long time to figure this sort of thing out. Yeah. So it is very difficult to choose a church. Yeah, yeah, that's, and I think that's it. And an organization.
You know, I mean, it's yeah. not just yeah. a lot of times you you sign up and you're a part of an organization. And as you said, three months takes some time to really um, understand um, what what exactly what is exactly is going on. For sure, for sure. You talked a little bit earlier about the idea of misconduct. And um, when we look when misconduct does take place, how can we learn to focus on those that have been wounded rather than on self-interest and protecting those that are in um, positions of power or influence? Uh, Aaron, I'm just, uh, we're just working this out with some leaders. And um, about two weeks ago, I had a conversation with a with a denominational leader, a bishop. And he asked me what I thought should happen. And I said, the first thing that should happen when there is an actual case of misconduct is you have to have two point people, one of whose responsibility is to care for the person who has filed a report. And that's the person that they care for. Now, if there's multiple people, then they you got to have someone who can care for a lot of people. All right. Another person's responsibility is to care for the, let's see, the person who is alleged to have committed the, you know, the perpetrator is sometimes in, in legal courts. I, I think that's a strong word, but it could be. So let's say the abuser, the person who's being accused. Someone also has to care for that person. Churches tend almost, let's say, 95% will immediately care for the pastor and ignore the reporting people, those with allegations, hmm. and they will be largely ignored. I'm, I'm talking right now with a case where the person has uh, made allegations about uh, five months ago hmm. and has virtually never been conducted, uh, contacted. Hmm. by the uh, board, the hmm. elders, the leaders, uh, other than through almost lawyer-type expressions and letters. Wow. No pastoral care at all for that person. Hmm. This is the problem we have in churches. Now, there is a, a rise in churches and institutions today to be more victim-centered or survivor-centric, and hmm. I, I fully applaud that. Uh, but in the process, we don't want now to flip the other way and ignore, uh, let's say it's a pastor. We don't want to ignore that person. Someone needs to be in charge of caring for that person in a rather routine and uh, regular way. Yeah. Rather than say, now, if you have a problem, contact me. Yeah. Uh, rather, it, it needs to be a, a routine, uh, regular contact. And I think we need to do this. We need to have two people. Hmm ombudsman, uh, you know, agents in your church, somebody who has this administrative skill. And I believe that it would be extremely rare that they would communicate with one another. And I would say there should be a blanket of silence between the two hmm. uh, where they are not reporting. Uh, this is what these people are saying. And this is sure. what these people, these people have to be trustworthy to maintain very serious levels of confidence yeah so that, i would say that that that's the strategy that we're seeing uh, developed that i think will be very helpful for churches yeah, and for institutions sure. mission organizations yeah, yeah for sure yeah 
You you mentioned in the book some reasons that when Tove cultures um, focus on healing, redeeming, and restoring. What what are what are some reasons you think that Tove cultures redeem, uh, heal, redeem, and restore? This is a fact. When people were around Jesus, their spirits were lifted, their bodies were healed. You know, their lives were transformed. Tov is a contagion. Tov has the capacity to make more things Tov. Grace does this. Love does this. Hmm. And so, so we focus on the word Tov in our book, so I'll focus there. If we are around Tov people, it will make us Tover. You know, hmm. that's not a word, but I'll, I'll <laughs> use it. Uh, if we were around, if we are participate in a Bible study of Tov people, we will become more Tov. Hmm. This is the essence of education in the ancient world uh, and pre-enlightenment, where education was about emulation and imitation, not about information. Yes, hmm. information has to pass from one person to another. But it was more about being with someone that you wanted to be like. Hmm. And that's why I think uh, that, uh, that, that Tov can be a healing and church cultures can become healing agents if they take on the characteristics of Tov. Wow. Can you share that just once again, if emulation and, and not just information? Ed- education in the ancient world was about yeah. emulation and imitation, there we go. not about information. Oh, excellent. I'm sorry, I forgot the second one. I, it it yeah. caught my mind is is uh, a tweetable quote. I'm not on Twitter, but that's a tweetable quote. And um, honestly, something I think that um, yeah really speaks to me is, though, as we, we do seek to heal, redeem, and restore, and for people to know that they're known and that there's value and that, that it, obviously we have dignity in our lives. When you, you also continue talking about Tove culture, uh, you you mentioned that how a church treats women is often a barometer of its culture and how it p- treats people in general. Could you just share some more about that? Yeah, if you if you ask women, they'll tell you the answer. You know, mm. this is this is something that I pass on from my my uh, women students, my female students at Northern Seminary, women who are in ministry women who are leaders in institutions, they feel and sense things that, uh, let's just say, the male culture that formed the culture doesn't see because it's invisible. They need other eyes and other ears and other people present in order to see these things. I'm, um, I'm preaching this Sunday on the on the good the the Samaritan woman in John chapter four, recent research by women like Lynn Coick and Karen Reeder, Lynn is at Northern Seminary and Karen Reeder is at Westmont, have demonstrated that I mean this is now, I would say entirely convincing, that the woman, the Samaritan woman, cannot be accused of anything sexual. There is not one shred of evidence in that text that she did anything sexual. There are all kinds of reasons why a woman in the first century 
could have been married several times. Hmm. Men did not live that long. Hmm. And there was leveret marriage. And if you ended up having to marry a brother of of your husband who died, he could die too. <laughs> uh, he could be older, etc. And and when the when Jesus interacts with this woman, um, he doesn't say repent. He doesn't say leave the man. Hmm. Uh, she's probably living with a brother or something like that who is taking care of her. And she then goes back to the community, and everybody in the community believes her. And they come out to meet with Jesus. It looks to me like she's a community leader. She hmm. is. She that's the characteristic. This is why we need women in a room. Because mm. they they look at this and they say, why do you think that this woman was sexually promiscuous? Mm. You know, do you think the only reason a woman could be married more than one time is because she's a, is because she's you know mm. adulterous or whatever? Right. Uh, so, I believe we need this. Uh, we we need to see how we treat women, and the only way we can assess how we treat women is to let women tell the truth of their experience in a way that is safe and there will be no retaliation. Hmm. And I also believe we need to share platforms with women. Wow. Because if we men are still making all the decisions, then women are only tokenized as uh, someone, oh, we, we know what our women think, we've talked to them. No, I want them to be in the room where it happens. I want them to be in the room where decisions are made. Wow. I just want to pause for 30 seconds in the middle of this episode to share some exciting news about the book I published, A Caring Life, How Each of Us Can Change the Trajectory of an Uncaring World. It's available now on Amazon and audiobook, Kindle, and print form. And the book helps us recognize that our world is moving in a direction of an uncaring life and helps us reorient towards a caring life where those that are in our life feel valued, they feel known, they know that they belong, and they matter. The book, as I said, is, is a valuable resource and I believe will help change the trajectory of an uncaring world. It's available now on Amazon. And so if for those the men that are listening in, um, some practical ways that you've seen that works is, is so that women are um, there when the decisions are made and it's not, yeah, that their insight, wisdom, and as you said, discernment um, can help us. Any any practical steps you think that the challenges with today on that? Well, look at your board. You, you have to assess uh, where the power lies in your group. All right, let's just say you have a board of five people. Yeah. Uh, what would happen if three of those board members are women? Hmm. Number one, the men would start getting nervous. <laughs> that's that's a healthy sign of a need for change. Um, and I would experiment with opening the platform to women. Uh, so in other words, in these board meetings, give more authority to women. Get rid of the male majority, make it at least 50-50, hmm. and then listen to the women in the room to see if they are actually respected as legitimate voices, or are they just there to listen to the men talk? Hmm. And, um, you know, I, I work with some very strong women like Lynn Coick. Um, these people, uh, Lynn is, is a wonderful leader who perceives hmm. male power when it's being used, 
you know, it's sometimes called mansplaining. And uh, I've never quite figured out exactly how that works. But when it's said, uh, I feel the sting. Hmm. Uh, so I, I believe we need to share. We need to move over. Men need to, because men are on the platform, we need to move over and share that platform with women in a way that gives them voice and safety. Yeah, that's good. A, a challenging word. You share also about the when it's a sign of a culture um, that when a leader's approval becomes the gold standard. Can you just share a little bit more about that and what that when you see that the leader's approval is the gold standard, what goes off in your mind as you studied? Um, yeah, this this idea of culture and toe culture and toxic culture. Yeah, um, it's it's a difficult thing because you probably have to be inside in an inner circle to recognize this. But when people are in a conversation, let's say, say you have a pastor or a denominational leader or an inst a Christian institutional leader, and you're in a, and you're in a room and where does the, where does this leader sit? Does he, mm. does he, it's almost always a, he sit at the head of the table. Mm. That's symbolic of something. And it is so symbolic that people will all be faced toward him. All mm. right. The second thing is, do do people are are people free to express disagreement? And are they all then looking at this pastor or this leader to see if he approves or not? Those are signs of approval. And behind closed doors, are you hearing people say, I can't do this because I could get fired for saying this, or I, I'm not free to say this. This is the biggest problem that we are experiencing in churches today, is the abuse of power by male leaders who create a fear culture and then use that fear to manipulate people into conformity. Wow. That's, that's the biggest problem that we see when we, you know, and I've... Um, for three years, we've been listening to stories about churches. At one point, I would say for 15 months, my daughter and I combined heard between three and five stories a week about wow. people who had experienced power abuse by their pastor or their leaders. Hmm. And this is the common that this is the common thing. They they threaten people. People are are convinced that if they disagree, if they do something wrong, they're going to be cut off hmm. and they can get fired. And so all of a sudden they're now acting not in the freedom of their giftedness, not in the freedom of their personality, but they're acting in such a way not to be disapproved. Hmm. That's destructive hmm. to a church culture, to an institution culture. Wow. And is that something that, that develops over time? Um, if these stories that you've heard about the abuse of power when that the leader's approval becomes the gold standard. Is that something that develops over time or is that something that you can see uh, quickly or yeah, just how do you see it play out or have heard about well, it playing out? Uh, you know, for some people, they, they, they drop heavy, they drop a heavy hand the first week just to hmm. let people know that they're the boss. Hmm. Uh, I was reading about someone the other day who, um, the first mistake made by someone that he hires, he gets to hire them. Um, he makes them do menial tasks for a day and, you know, like address envelopes. Sure. And then 
punishes them for not getting their other work done. Hmm. Now, this is this is, happens quickly in the job. Yeah. The first mistake made, the first time a person doesn't rise to the level of this, this uh, leader's expectations. Others, it takes time to, to recognize this, that they're sort of a slow boiler. You mm -hmm. know, they, they've got a little steam that goes on, but they haven't, uh, they don't jump on people right away. So I think that uh, it takes time for some people and others, they want to assert their authority immediately to let everybody know that they're in charge now. Yeah. And I've, I've seen it with both kinds of people, but both of them have the same problem. So would a Tove culture have a culture that there's safety in making mistakes, uh, meaning that if you're able to learn and grow in a, a church environment or in an organization environment where I'm not talking about egregious mistakes, but I'm talking about, yeah. your, you know, yeah. you, you didn't do it right the first time. So would that be a sign of a Tove culture that there's safety in making mistakes? Okay, a sign of a Tove culture will be that people have been there a long time. Hmm that people aren't all leaving all the time. So there's not a high turnover Sure, and that they have been mentored into their jobs and they rise within the organization to higher levels of responsibility. So if you hire someone, you are hiring your responsibility to mentor that person into success and your measurement of success is their success rather than how much glory you get. That's good. That's good. That's good. Um, you also talk about a healthy Tove cultures. Leaders will avoid denial and spin in favor of finding the truth. When something's been brought up, they don't try to spin it, manipulate it, but they seek to find the truth and they want the truth to be told. Um, what are some reasons you found that to be important when it comes to a Tove culture? Well, um, a toxic culture will spin. They will want the story to go out that protects, let's say, the toxic leader or the toxic institution, the toxic church, the toxic denomination, organization, whatever you want to call it. They will spin the story so that they are protected. And it's very difficult for outsiders to know the true story. Hmm. A true, I mean, a, a Tove culture will have an instinct to tell the truth. Hmm. Not necessarily the whole truth, mm -hmm. but the truth. Yeah. Instead of saying so-and-so had five affairs with four people in the church. Mm-hmm. They will say, you know, they might decide to say this person has committed um, adultery or this person has violated Christian conduct in the workplace. But they won't say uh, the Lord has called this person to another place now. Hmm. So the latter one is hmm. a spin. The former one is truth telling. Yeah. And when people in a congregation, and especially what I call the skinny jeans generation, the young generation, when they see that the leaders spun the story, yeah. their cynicism is enhanced hmm. and expanded. And they begin to say, you know, these leaders never tell the truth. Hmm. 
and I know organizations that they, they are masters of spin all the time. Uh, right out underneath you, you see it going on, and it's very difficult to pin because you may not know the full facts. And only the, let's say that someone gets released from the job. Sure. Only that person and the person who fired them probably knows the whole story. Right. If the person who gets fired or who leaves um, is unwilling to talk, guess who gets to tell the story? Yeah. Yeah. See, the leader, and that leader can spin the story any way he wants. Yeah. And many leaders are adept at this yeah. to make things look good. Yeah. And that kind of leads me to that that second um, uh, second part of this question is the idea that when someone leaves, they should finish well and um, be silent. And the and if they do talk about what has went on, um, you talk about in the book about the idea, then they're being unbiblical and um, that should, they should be silent and finish well and just kind of fade. Um, can you just talk a little bit more about that and and how we use the idea of you talk in the book about unbiblical and projecting that onto somebody to almost get them to be almost using Christian. I don't know if I'm saying this correctly, but using Christianity against them that they want to be Christ-like, and then the person in power yeah. makes them feel. Yeah. yeah, does that make sense? Yeah. Is that is that a fair? Yeah, who you know you ask the question, who's going to gain by this story? Yeah, uh, that's a pretty good question. Uh, but yes, um, it's manipulative to tell a worker uh, we're going. We need to part ways. You know, hmm. that's a nice way of saying I'm firing you. Um, and it would be good for you and your future if you uh, learn how to talk about this in a way that will not hurt the church. Hmm. Because after all, this is God's work, not your work, not my work, not our work. It's God's work. So there's theological truth. Yes, the church is God's work. And yes, we don't want to degrade the church, but if I'm asking you not to talk in such a way that violations of Christian ethics are present and I can't talk about them, then I am at the same time hiding the truth, and that's worse for the church hmm. than telling— I mean, when the church says we failed, that's hmm. good. Hmm. The church is made up of sinners— if yeah. it can never admit that it failed, it's not doing well. Yeah, that's good. Um, I like we're you know we're Anglicans. Uh, I like uh, I like the prayer book, the the Book of Common Prayer. Every you know we use it in our church service every week. We confess our sins. Yeah, it's very interesting to me that a lot of these leaders seem to think that their sin was in the past. And they cannot admit their sins anymore, even though they have First John one nine in their Bible. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know that we need to continually confess our sins. Um, and and it's it's a bad culture when the when people feel like if they can if they confess their sins, that they will lose their job or they will be degraded. Yeah, when admitting our faults, our mistakes, our sins is inherent to what the gospel is all about. Yeah. To forgive our sins. I was having lunch today with someone and we were I was telling them I was excited about this interview this evening and um recommended the book and they downloaded the book at lunch and uh, in that process they said you know in the times that they've uh, transitioned out of different churches, they've been told, hey, be careful what you say, you're going to burn bridges. 
And they said, you know, that was always the pre the pressure on us is be watchful what you say, because, you know, if you burn bridges or you say too much, I have power to. Yeah. Yeah. Is, and so is that a sign of a, a toxic culture or totally, what? Yeah, how does, totally. So how does, someone, how does someone navigate telling the truth and then with somebody, they have somebody telling them they're, you're going to burn bridges and yeah, I can affect your future. Well, sometimes we have to burn bridges. Um, it's unfortunate that we have to do that. And sometimes our reputation can take a hit by people telling false stories. Hmm. I'm dealing right now with a woman who was blocked from doing her job well at a Christian institution and now has learned that her boss at that institution is degrading her reputation with other people. Hmm. So if she comes out and talks, you know, she fears retaliation. Sure. If she comes out and talk and doesn't, or if she doesn't talk, that leader will continue to commit the, that same kind of violation against people. So it's a difficult situation. And I, I would say uh, that any, any leader who says, um, don't burn bridges is manipulating the situation to protect their own reputation. Wow. And that's a sign of toxicity. Yeah. Got now, two more. Okay. There, there are some people who are a little bit reckless, aren't they? Yeah. You know, they'll just go out and start talking and you go, you know, that's not the best way to do it. Sure. There are, there's a time to talk and a time not to talk. Sure. And a wise person knows the proper time. Yeah. That's and good. the proper way. Yeah. Got two more questions for you real quick. Um, how have you seen power and fear undermine trust and grace created when it comes to a Tove culture? Yeah. Grace, grace, grace is the opposite of, of power through fear. Hmm. So um, when a leader manipulates and abuses power, over time, a culture of fear develops. And when fear develops, people are not free to exercise their gifts, and to do what God has called them to do. Instead, as I said before, they are now doing things so as not to get into trouble. Yeah, That's a bad situation for a worker. Yeah, You know, uh, like I, I'm right now working with uh, a PhD student who teaches some of our classes, and she's, she's a very gifted person. Um, if if I jump on her for everything that I think she didn't do quite right, she's going to be nervous in the class. Yeah. So my my point is, you 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 know, this is a new expression my wife and I use. You do you, you know, <laughs> and uh, and and we'll see how this works out, and we'll learn from it. Yeah. And I want her to grow, and she's a confident woman. She'll grow in her teaching skills because. She's given freedom to teach the way she wants. And she doesn't say to me, what should I say? You know, what, what are in your notes? I give her my notes. I say, make them your own, do what you want. Uh, but this is what I need. We need to be covered at least a little bit. And, and she does. She takes it and makes it her own. And I, I sit there and think, I wish I'd have said that. That yeah. was really well done. Yeah. So I think Grace says, uh, we're gonna we're gonna give you the freedom to to do your to do it the way you do it, 
and we're going to learn together. But Grace, uh, Aaron, is connected to mentoring. Hmm. And mentoring is connected to trust. Okay. And trust is is about safety, isn't it? Yeah. It is, you know, I want you to do what you can do, and we're going to grow together. Yeah. And we're going to do whatever we can to help you be even better th- at what you're doing. I'm not here to criticize you. I'm here to help you become better at yeah, what you good. do. That's good. So, that's yeah. good. Last question for you. When the needs of an organization become greater than the needs of the people in the organization, what happens to the people within? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, the The people become disposable. They become parts hmm. rather than people. They don't have stories. They don't have names. They don't have personalities. They don't have relationships. They have roles in a machine that they can be pulled out and we can put someone else in like a, let's say, a new key for my keyboard, sure. you know? Yeah. Um, I don't develop a relationship with the letter G, you know? <laughs> if <laughs> if it doesn't work anymore, I go, I go get them, I get them to put, give me a new <laughs> keyboard. Um but if I know that person and that person's story has influenced me and I've influenced them, then I'm not as concerned with the reputation of the institution as I am with the relationship with the people uh, that are in our organization together. Hmm. And this is, um, this is one of the great marks of a Tove culture is that it is filled with thriving, flourishing relationships with one another that uh, fuel the Hmm. organization, the church, the institution to become a better organization because of those relationships. Wow, that's good. That's a good word. And um, you mentioned earlier that I think you called them the skinny jean generation. Do you think they're more apt to understand when they are, uh, I would say, a cog in the wheel of an organization or just a, a, a G on the keyboard? Are they... Are people becoming more adept at understanding their role in that? And do they see it? Or sorry, I added the question on. You know, that. I think I think that's true. I'm not into um no, I haven't studied this sort of of uh, generational divide on jobs, but uh, it is it is the case that they want to participate. The younger generation wants to participate rather than play a function. You know, in the old days, when you graduated from Bible college or seminary, you became a youth pastor for yeah. 10 years. Yeah. And then after you had served your time, you became a pastor. The The younger generation says, no, you know, I think I'm ready to pastor. Yeah. <laughs> or, or at least they want to participate. And we hire them in, the, in churches or organizations, and they want to be at the table where things sure. are happening. And... Older, my generation says, no, you pay your time. You start at the bottom and you work your way up. This generation is against that sort of um, process of Mm. an older generation. I don't know that that process is wrong. I just know that this young generation doesn't connect with that. So I think we do need to incorporate the younger generation into at the table to listen to them. And I think we're going to be better because of it. It's a good word. Good word. Scott, you've challenged me um, through your book. It's been a, an honor to spend some time with you today. Um, we end the podcast in prayer. And will you pray for us yeah. um, in whatever direction you'd like to pray? Okay. Father, we know that you are good. 
We know that you love us, that your grace is upon us, and that you want us to have life and to have it to the fullest extent. And may we be the sort of people who nurture and foster organizations, churches, institutions that mentor people into thriving, into flourishing, and into exploiting their giftedness so that they bring glory to you through what you have called them to do. And may we uh, rejoice in their flourishing. We pray this all through Christ our Lord.